Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by T.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyoffilosophy.net. Today's episode, Teacher Taught Me, Julius Nerere. When Leopold Senghor resigned from the presidency of Senegal in 1980, it was, as we noted in episode 87, a rare event, a peaceful transfer of power, a contrast to the violent coups often seen in Africa's newly independent nations. But on November 5th, 1985, another pioneering leader of the post-independence era followed Senghor's example. This was Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania. In an Associated Press report on his decision to step down, Nyerere is described as leaving a mixed legacy. On the positive side, the report tells us, he achieved political stability and some undisputed social achievements. But on the negative side, he could be blamed for a sputtering state-run economy that has made Tanzania one of the world's poorest countries. The report includes some quotations from Nyerere. These show that he was humble enough to recognize that he made mistakes. I'm sure there are certain things with the experience I have now that I would do slightly better. But also that as far as he was concerned, his approach to managing the economy was not a failure. The basic policies of my country I would repeat, exactly repeat. I would still work for a socialist Tanzania, self-reliant, non-aligned, committed to the liberation of Africa, to the unity of Africa. These words and the occasion on which they were spoken provide a useful introduction to the man popularly known as Mualim, the Swahili word for teacher. The fact that he relinquished the presidency suggests that he was a leader more concerned with the good of the nation than the preservation of his own power. Certainly that is how Nyerere is widely seen, even by many who would harshly criticize his policies, as a man of integrity who stood by his principles and values. He also wrote and spoke extensively about those principles and values. He's therefore widely viewed as one of the foremost intellectuals among Africa's first generation of post-colonial leaders. Indeed, like Senghor and Kwame Nkrumah, Nyerere is regularly identified as one of Africa's so-called philosopher kings. It is precisely as a philosopher, of course, that we are interested in him, but his philosophy cannot be understood in isolation without considering his policies. As we've just seen, he steadfastly refused to repudiate the broader aims of those policies, socialism, self-reliance, non-alignment, and the pan-Africanist goals of the liberation and unification of Africa. What tied all of these goals together was freedom. There's little chance of overlooking the centrality of that concept, given the titles of the three volumes that collect most of his important speeches and writings, Freedom and Unity, Freedom and Socialism, and Freedom and Development. And these are indeed the major themes of his thought, though it would also have been appropriate for there to have been a volume named Freedom and Education. That Associated Press report we quoted as lamenting Tanzania's economic troubles goes on to conclude with a more admiring remark about this topic. Nyerere made his countrymen among the best educated in Africa. Its 85% literacy rate is more than three times the average for the continent and nearly six times that at Tanzania's independence in 1961. Is this a clear sign of the strength of his ideas on education or merely a happy statistic irrelevant to judging his philosophical perspective? We'll consider different approaches to the relationship between his political thought and political actions as we explore Nyerere's life and career. He was born in 1922 in what was at that time Tanganyika, a colony in East Africa ruled by the British. 1922 was, in fact, the year that British rule was formalized through recognition of Tanganyika as a League of Nations mandate. 
It was subject to this classification because, along with a number of other colonies in Africa, it was previously a German colony until the First World War resulted in Germany's being stripped of its overseas possessions. Nyerere's father had been appointed a chief of the Zanaki people during the time of German rule, and he continued to hold this position under the British. Nyerere himself took to education, as well as to the Catholic Church, which he joined. In fact, Julius was his baptismal name. Previously, he was known as Kambarage, which he came to treat as his middle name. In 1943, he went to Uganda to attend Makerere College, the only institution of higher learning in East Africa at that time. As early as his time at Makerere, he became convinced that African people were naturally socialistic, as he wrote in a letter to the Tanganyika Standard. He is also known to have encountered the writings of the British philosopher John Stuart Mill at this time. He even won a literary contest by writing a long essay that applied a feminist critique drawn from Mill's book, The Subjection of Women, to gender relations among his people, the Zanaki. When he returned home to Tanganyika, Nyerere began teaching at a high school, hence his honorific Mualimu. Soon enough, though, he left once again to pursue education, this time going all the way to Scotland to study at the University of Edinburgh. Majoring in political science, he continued to think about Mill and also took interest in another British philosopher of the 19th century, Thomas Hill Green. The progressive liberalism of Green's political philosophy can be seen as a precursor for the socialist movement in Britain known as the Fabian Society. Nyerere got involved with the Fabians while he was in Scotland, a contrast to the Marxist route that brought other African leaders to socialist activism. When he returned home once again, this time with a master's degree, he got back into teaching and began to get serious about politics. He became the president of the Tanganyika African Association, a pre-existing political organization made up mainly of civil servants. He then led the transformation of this organization into a political party, TANU, the Tanganyika African National Union. Despite the limitation of a system of governance that intentionally overrepresented Europeans and Asians while underrepresenting Africans, in 1958, Tanu managed to become the dominant party of influence within the colony's legislative council. It further helped Tanu's cause when the colony received a new governor, Richard Turnbull, who had been a chief secretary in Kenya during the violent insurgency of the Mau Mau uprising and its violent suppression by the government. Turnbull was thus motivated to cooperate in order to achieve a peaceful resolution of the struggle against colonialism in Tanganyika. In 1961, the colony became an independent realm within the British Commonwealth, with Nyerere as prime minister, and in the following year, a republic with no remaining formal ties to the British crown. Nyerere was its first president. You'll notice that we are still speaking of Tanganyika. When are we going to get to Tanzania? Well, you know how the celebrity couple, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, are jointly referred to as Brangelina? Tanzania is a bit like that, albeit with less interest from American tabloids. Tanganyika originates as the indigenous designation for the lake that forms the country's western border. Its name was fused with that of Zanzibar, an island archipelago in the Indian Ocean right next to Tanganyika. Zanzibar was a sultanate with a long history, part of the special culture of the Swahili coast that we discussed with interview guest Kai Kresse back in episode 26. It was also a British protectorate from the late 19th century until 1963 when it gained independence. In 1964, the Zanzibar Revolution toppled the Sultan, and it seemed that Cold War superpowers might intervene. Nyerere and a Zanzibari leader avoided this possibility by negotiating a federation between Zanzibar and Tanganyika, giving us the new country of Tanzania or as it is also sometimes pronounced, Tanzania. So much for the historical scene in the 1960s. 
let's now consider Nyerere's major ideas. First and foremost, we need to understand Ujamaa, most often translated as familyhood in scholarship on Tanzania because it is an abstract noun made out of the Swahili word for family. We've seen the term before. In episode 111, we noted that Maulana Karenga chose to translate it as cooperative economics when including it as the fourth of the seven principles of Kwanzaa. This is precisely because Karenga learned it from Nyerere's economic policy. Nyerere appears to have begun using the term under the influence of Petro Itose Mareale, a chief of the Chaga people of Tanzania. The word Ujamaa appears in his 1947 book in Swahili about Chaga customs. Whatever his source or sources, though, Nyerere very much made this word his own, beginning with one of his most cited works, Ujamaa, The Basis of African Socialism. Published in 1962 as a government pamphlet, it proclaims the foundation and the objective of African socialism to be the extended family. The identification here of family relations as the foundation of African socialism involves calling Africans to view traditional African culture as the source of their socialism, resulting in a rejection of the European path of Marxism. That path is represented as both foreign and ethically unworthy for its celebration of conflict. As Nyerere sees it, European socialist thinking developed in the wake of historical conflict between first landed and landless classes and then between capitalists and the proletariat. As a result, its apostles sanctified the conflict itself into a philosophy. Africans need not and should not see class conflict as the basis for socialism. In fact, Nyerere expresses doubt that there is an equivalent to the word class in any indigenous African languages, boldly stating, language describes the ideas of those who speak it, and the idea of class or caste was non-existent in African society. This striking claim for the universal egalitarianism of traditional African societies exemplifies what many have seen as a major problem with Nyerere's thought, namely his reliance on a romanticized fiction of the African past that could not possibly correspond to the diverse realities of pre-colonial African cultures. There can be no doubt that, at least with respect to this claim about class, Nyerere engaged in problematic generalizations concerning African traditions. But to engage in an overgeneralization is not necessarily to rely on a fiction. A few scholars have treated anthropological information about the Zanaki as shedding light on the provenance of Nyerere's ideas about traditional African socioeconomic relations. So even if Zanaki customs are not characteristic of every African ethnic group, defenders of Nyerere can still credit him with rooting his ethical socialism in traditional reality. Though it was published as a government pamphlet intended to educate the population, Ujamaa, the basis of African socialism, is not primarily a statement of policies. It is, above all, an attempt to encourage the cultivation of certain mental habits among all citizens. Indeed, the pamphlet famously begins with this distinctive framing of its topic, socialism, like democracy, is an attitude of mind. The socialist frame of mind involves caring for others in a way that excludes the acquisitive project of gaining wealth for its own sake rather than for the sake of helping others. Nyerere also claims that, in traditional African society, everybody was a worker. This allows him to critique the Marxist emphasis on conflict between workers and employers, which is revealed as a parochial response to specifically European conditions. On the same basis, he condemns those who fail to do their part for the betterment of all by loitering or idling. In general, the pamphlet does not focus on the social structures and activities that would make up a socialist economy, but on describing the communalist virtues that Nyerere associates with being a socialist. 
His desire for people to see socialism as their birthright through African tradition is, of course, also a concern for the psychological structures that best support socialism. Yet pride in African tradition should never mean privileging one's African identity or any other specific identity to the point that one forgets to be human. The right way to learn from traditional African communalism is to extend a sense of familyhood to the point that it includes the entire globe. This is part of why extended family is not just the foundation, but even the objective of socialism, as he understands it. He writes, We came to recognize that the same socialist attitude of mind which in the tribal days gave to every individual the security that comes of belonging to a widely extended family must be preserved within the still wider society of the nation. But we should not stop there. Our recognition of the family to which we all belong must be extended yet further, beyond the tribe, the community, the nation, or even the continent, to embrace the whole of mankind. This is the only logical conclusion for true socialism. As the 1960s went on, Mirare sought to realize his vision of socialism in Tanzania through various strategies, including the nationalization of banks and industries. The most controversial part of Ujamaa as a political program was the process of villagization, a planned alternative to urbanization. The government incentivized the resettlement of people in rural areas, aimed at creating concentrated and well-organized centers of agricultural activity known as Ujamaa villages. Much of the criticism of Nyerere's failings as a leader focuses on the shortcomings and ills of this policy, including the fact that, as time went on, more and more of this resettlement was forced rather than voluntary. We can understand the intellectual basis of this controversial policy by turning to the Arusha Declaration, Nyerere's landmark 1967 announcement of Tanzania's economic path. It includes reflections on one of his favorite themes, self-reliance. It is, in his blunt opinion, stupid to imagine that Tanzania could overcome the problem of poverty through foreign financial assistance. He argues that it is, first of all, unrealistic to expect the country to gain enough from gifts, loans, and private investment to meet its lofty development goals. Even if it were realistic, though, reliance on foreign sources for economic stability and advancement would mean endangering the country's independence. Nyerere links these two points to what he takes to be a deeper mistake, thinking that money and industry are the weapons needed for Tanzania to defeat poverty. This type of thinking leads towards shamelessly chasing foreign aid and investment, and also to the kind of urbanization that Nyerere directly opposed through the villagization project. The four weapons that Tanzania needs in order to achieve progress are, according to Nyerere, people, land, good policies, and good leadership. He views these factors, properly understood, as allowing for self-sufficiency through the proper use of land. Money and industry can come later. Nyerere knew very well that he was asking a lot of Tanzanians. From the leaders in particular, he demanded abstinence from involvement with private enterprise or indeed anything else that could make them rich. The point of all this was solidarity, a communal sense of rising together or falling together. Nyerere's many speeches on education reflect this concern. In Education for Self-Reliance, from the same year as the Arusha Declaration, he frames post-colonial education as facing the problem that colonial education induced attitudes of human inequality and in practice underpinned the domination of the weak by the strong, especially in the economic field. His proposal for redressing this problem typifies what we can call his radical agrarian approach to progress. Every school should also be a farm, and the school community should consist of people who are both teachers and farmers, and pupils and farmers. If we're all farming, in addition to learning, he argues, we can overcome the elitist notion that only book learning is worthy of respect. 
in a speech called The Intellectual Needs Society from the following year, 1968, Nyerere reflects on the investment that a poor country like Tanzania makes by virtue of establishing and maintaining universities. Those who benefit from higher education should in turn be of service to the nation. Indeed, he claims that universities can only be justified if they help to satisfy the needs of the country, even as the vast majority of the country's people go nowhere near higher education. Rather than seeing higher education as a path to privilege, those who pursue it must recognize themselves as subservient to their society. As he puts it, work at the university must therefore be so organized that it enables the students upon graduation to become effective servants, for servants they must be. And servants have no rights which are superior to those of their masters. They have more duties, but no more privileges or rights. And the masters of us educated people are and must be the masses of the people. Solidarity is emphasized yet again in his 1970 speech on the church and society. He credits Christianity with making it easy to understand why development should never be reduced to new factories, increased output, or greater national income statistics. After all, the basic aspiration of the Christian union with God through Christ is spiritual rather than material. Nevertheless, he sees the church as all too often making the opposite error of reducing development to the personal internal matter of spirituality. Sounding like Frederick Douglass, or to name someone of his own time, James Cone, Nyerere argues that unless we participate actively in the rebellion against those structures and economic organizations which condemn men to poverty, humiliation, and degradation, then the church will become irrelevant to man and the Christian religion will degenerate into a set of superstitions accepted by the fearful. Nyerere was a devout Catholic, yet insisted on the secularity of African socialism during his time as president. In this way, he aimed to hold together Tanzania's religious mix of Christians, Muslims, and those still following traditional African beliefs. But there is no better example of his impressive achievements with regard to Tanzanian unity than his love for and promotion of the Swahili language. Its status as foremost language of Tanzania is rather unique, as it is an indigenous African tongue that unifies a nation of many ethnicities without being viewed as privileging this or that ethnic group. Nyerere displayed his love for the language by translating important works into Kiswahili, notably two plays by William Shakespeare, Julius Caesar, so that's Julius rendering Julius, and The Merchant of Venice. Nyerere's final major project of translation reminds us once again that he was a political philosopher at heart. He translated Plato's Republic into Swahili. Going beyond religion and ethnicity, Nyerere also worked to transcend divisions along the lines of race. Just after the initial attainment of independence, the Tanu was divided over the question of whether non-Africans, that is, Europeans and Asians, the latter being mostly from India, would be granted citizenship. Nyerere's insistence on the principle of equal citizenship regardless of race created so much conflict that he resigned as prime minister. Even after he won the presidency, he was ambivalent about measures like Africanization, that is, the intentional placement of Africans in positions of power previously held by non-Africans. By 1964, he brought that policy to an end. Later on during the 1970s, he was openly critical of President Idi Amin of Uganda for forcibly expelling Asians. It is rare to find a figure combining so much commitment to both non-racialism and pan-Africanism. We noted in our episode on The Wretched of the Earth that Fanon's pan-Africanism was non-racial, but Nyerere was much more invested than Fanon ever was in the significance of the African past and the value of traditional African culture. 
Famously, during the 1960s, Tanzania also became the home in exile of revolutionary organizations fighting for freedom in Southern Africa, particularly Mozambique and South Africa. It also at times hosted Shirley Graham Du Bois, who had continued to live in Ghana after her husband's death in 1963, but had left Ghana after the overthrow of President Nkrumah in 1966. Graham Du Bois was given Tanzanian citizenship and wrote a biography of Nyerere. Even better known than her time in Tanzania, however, is the presence of the great Guyanese intellectual Walter Rodney from 1969 to 1974. It was while he was in Tanzania that Rodney wrote his magnum opus, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, as we will discuss in a future episode all about him. Nyerere enjoyed close, friendly relationships with a number of his fellow pioneering leaders of African countries. A prime example would be Kenneth Kaunda, the first president of independent Zambia, who was often ranked among the philosopher kings of post-colonial Africa for his development of the idea of Zambian humanism. His thoughts and writings can be usefully compared with Nyerere's. There were also notable similarities between the approach to governance Nyerere promoted and that of Milton Obote, president of Uganda until he was overthrown in a coup by Idi Amin. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Obote ended up living in exile in Tanzania. He went back only after the overthrow of Amin, which happened under rather extraordinary circumstances. After managing to pursue independence non-violently, Nyerere found himself having to go to war after Amin tried to annex a piece of Tanzania in 1978. Nyerere's troops eventually took the capital of Uganda, Kampala, sending Amin fleeing to Saudi Arabia. While Nyerere won the war, it was a draining force on an already weak economy. This must be part of the story told when considering the economic hardships of Tanzania in the 1980s and Nyerere's eventual resignation. And yet, during his retirement, he remained a force in Tanzanian politics, even playing a particularly large role in advocating multi-party democracy in the early 1990s. This brings up a paradox of Nyerere's career. Democracy, like socialism and self-reliance, was one of his pet themes, but he ruled Tanzania for the entirety of his time as president as head of the sole party in government. He defended one-party rule in a 1963 speech entitled Democracy and the Party System, arguing with evident sincerity the claim that, where there is one party and that party is identified with the nation as a whole, the foundations of democracy are firmer than they can ever be where you have two or more parties, each representing only a section of the community. It is not only remarkable in itself, but an example of a general shift in political outlook in Africa in the 1990s that he eventually changed his mind and encouraged multi-party elections. Having hosted Nelson Mandela in Tanzania clandestinely back in 1962, Nyerere lived long enough to see Mandela elected as president of South Africa in a democratic election in 1994. He reflected, when President Nelson Mandela took his seat to represent a non-racial, post-apartheid democratic South Africa, the first objective of the founding fathers had been achieved. Our continent had been totally liberated from colonialism and racial minority rule. Nyerere died just before the end of the 20th century in 1999, pleased to have participated in all this progress. We will soon provide comprehensive coverage of the thought of Mandela, but before we get to the full Nelson, we will find ourselves in one of the Portuguese-speaking parts of the African continent, Guinea-Bissau. We'll be spending a couple of episodes with Amilcar Cabral, one of Africa's most prominent revolutionaries, starting next time on The History of Africana Philosophy. Mm -hmm.